Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Well, first of all, a very warm welcome to all of you who have made it here this morning on, on Mother's Day, and uh, thank you for your patience. Agsa Ghana Yatanga Yawandi, I wish to acknowledge that the Art Gallery of South Australia stands on Ghana land. My name is Tracy Locke, and I'm a curator here at the Art Gallery of South Australia, the curator of Australian art, and I'm also the curator of the Clarice Beckett The Present Moment exhibition. We had hoped today would be a in-conversation event with Dr. Rosalind Hollenreich. Unfortunately, Ros has um, got herself a very new little puppy from the rescue home, and Ros had a fall with the puppy under her feet, and it's really shaken her up, and this only happened one or two days ago, and it was really best to not She's 83 now. I made it very clear with her that there was no pressure from anybody whatsoever for her to feel as though she still needs to deliver and come here. So she is resting, but I'm sure that we all here today wish her a speedy recovery. And so it begins that you see the start of a pattern of fortunate and unfortunate events associated with Clarice Beckett. And so I'm going to use this very precious opportunity, uh, instead of having a conversation with Roz, to really share some new information that has come to light as a result of the staging of the exhibition. I'm going to touch on and reflect on its critical acclaim. I'm also, if I have the nerve, and perhaps I will, as the curator of the exhibition, author of the book, and as the exhibition designer, I'll aim to provide you with a little bit of personal background into the why and the how of the assembling of this exhibition in the time of a global pandemic and what it was like to work in a whole new world order. I also wish to acknowledge, also acknowledge that we meet and speak this morning on Mother's Day. And I'd like to express my regards to the wonderful mothers of this world, including Rosalind. But I'd also like to acknowledge those who do the hidden mothering, that is, those women who support us and nurture us, who may not be biological mothers themselves, and yet champion our efforts let's say, here's to the godmothers and the sisters of the world that we live in. And I have to say, in the staging of this show, there are mothers, but they have stood by me and supported me, so I'd like to acknowledge them today as well. And I'm a mum too, by the way. I have four children, so uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them this afternoon and my own mother. We only know about the art uh, of Clarice Beckett because of a series of unfortunate events and a chance and fortuitous encounter in 1970. It is now, as you know, a story of Australian cultural legend. We know in 1970, Rosalind Hollenrake came across 2,000 canvases uh, in a shed, winding through the dead trees, 
past the lake, driving into this location. Ros Hollenrake recalled on the telephone to me last year, she recalled the experience was like an omen. The shock of discovering these precious paintings was at once heartbreaking, and yet it was also a thrill to finally discover the identity of this artist that had so immediately captivated Rosalind five years earlier. This recurring pattern of chance, fortune, misfortune, and tragedy associated with the lives mentioned continues to this very day. It is, though, it is as though there is a certain serendipity that pervades her unfolding story in art history. And so I'm going to talk, start my talk this morning focusing on, I've called it serendipitous fact number one. <laughs> so today is Mother's Day and what you as a group uh, may not be aware of is that the only reason this whole exhibition came about was because of the love of a man for his mother. And it was because one of our greatest benefactors had a long-held desire to gift the gallery a work in honour of his mother, Elizabeth Hunter. In her lifetime, Elizabeth, together with her husband, Dr Tom Hunter, was a highly discreet, incredibly private donor to the art gallery for nearly five decades. Their giving, according to Tom Hunter, her husband, their giving was, quote, for the benefit of the people of South Australia. Elizabeth was known for her elegance, her quiet beauty, and the pleasure she found in the everyday world. For half, I had been searching for a couple of years, actually, for a strategic and yet fitting acquisition for the Australian Art Collection. One that would best honour Elizabeth and Alistair's vision, and also be something worthy of remaining on public, permanent public display. That's always a challenge for us here. At the same time, you know how things are always tracking in parallel, I'd been, of course, a long-time friend of Ros Hollenrake. I'd first met Ros in the year 2000. I got to know her much better from the year of 2006 onwards when I started my research on an exhibition called Misty Moderns. We became great friends. It was always a dash to go and see Ros. I'd always coveted her collection of Clarice Beckett works in her home. And uh, she'd collected these works uh, with sometimes at great sacrifice um, over a 50-year period. And I always uh, said to Roz, you know, whenever the time is right and, and if and when, would you mind just ensuring that the Art Gallery of South Australia has the first right of refusal on purchasing the collection? Roz had a series of events occur in her life which meant the time was right to part with the collection. And I raised the idea with Alastair Hunter about acquiring the whole collection in honour of Elizabeth. And um, as an aside, people who know me well, including our donors, know that I don't just put one work forward. Of course, I had to say we need the whole collection. Um, Alastair understood the significance of the work. He was 
amazed by the extraordinary story and he understood the importance of keeping that collection together. He understood it would also fit into our modernist collection like a glove. In the recent publication to the Art Gallery of South Australia, which um, is this book you'll find in the, the bookshop, I was reading it this morning and in this book I write, there's a whole essay in here on the Clarice Beckett paintings. And in my essay I wrote, I was quite interested in going back and reading what I wrote. What I wrote was uh, the gentle quality of the Beckett paintings and their celebration of the beauty in the commonplace ensure that this donation represents a pertinent, this donation of 21 paintings, a pertinent and complementary memorial to the life of another woman of importance. Many parallels are to be drawn between Clarice Beckett and Elizabeth Hunter, beautiful and elegant. Elizabeth was nurturing and undertook an unassuming role in her family's life and as the wife of a busy medical doctor. Her contributions were selfless and silent and yet intrinsic. Like Clarice Beckett, Elizabeth found joy in the mundane and the ordinary and appreciated the splendour to be found in the everyday. This donation in Elizabeth's honour symbolically brings the role of all loving wives, mothers and daughters. The Hunter Beckett collection is a visionary gift to the nation. While the scale and premium quality of the donation itself defines Alistair as a significant patron in his own right. So how lucky are we here in South Australia that we have people like that supporting the Art Gallery of South Australia. Incredible. So, the Hunter donation transformed the development of the Australian Modernist Collection and it was an equally satisfying outcome for Ros Hollenry. Decades, a steady stream of Beckett connoisseurs made the pilgrimage to see Ros's private collection of Beckett's work in her much celebrated display in her South Yarra home. I'm sure you've, there we are. It was always a thing, you would always go and you'd usually have dinner and you would sit and have your dinner and have, be able to look up at this amazing wall. Her Beckett paintings, as you can see, were assembled on this beautiful wall and cast in natural light. There's a beautiful, huge window to the left that would always cast beautiful light in. I always felt it had a reverential effect of a shrine. Among those who have taken the pilgrimage include, of course, Russell Crowe had been in and uh, enjoyed Ros's wall of Beckett's. Uh, and may I say, just in passing, he was rather upset with me, the fact that we had a, uh, acquired all of Ros's work for the collection, but then he, he rolled over and agreed it was the right thing for the works to come here. Of course, he was very keen on acquiring Ros's collection. Um, too bad, too late, is what I say. <laughs> for, for Roz, that her collection of Beckett paintings would remain as a discrete group and be cared for. She said, and I quote Roz, I began to review my environment and the profound need to see 50 years of tireless work finally establish Beckett securely in Australian art history where she belongs. I decided the collection needed to go to a gallery that, where the work is understood and respected 
a place where students and the public can truly benefit from access to them. And just as a personal note here, when the day when the gallery went to collect the works from Ros, this is all towards the end of 2019. A king uh, for that day. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Silly. And uh, I said to her, are you okay? Are you okay? She said, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Um, it's all good. And she revealed to me that she had actually memorised, visually memorised every single one of the 21 paintings so that while they're no longer in her space uh, and in her home, she can immediately recall them in her mind. And once I knew that, I certainly felt better. And I still think of that often, I feel better. Ros was sincerely appreciative that Alastair Hunter's visionary and generous support was able to ensure this outcome. And you can see how well they got along. <laughs> and it was a wonderful thing to, to take Alastair and, and wonderful Darren to Melbourne uh, to meet Ros and, and talk. The Hunter donation of 21 Clarice Beckett paintings in December 2019, they were ratified made me in memory, uh, the donation in memory of his mother Elizabeth is among the most significant group acquisition of work by one female artist to be received in the museum. It's cornerstone edition. So my point being here on serendipitous fact number one <laughs> is that it was the love of a mother that inspired a major donation that triggered a series of other events. Spooky moment of serendipity number two, I'll go to now, moving forward in time. In late January 2020, the pandemic was starting to take its grip. Our international loans, critical to the gallery's 2021 festival exhibition, were in jeopardy. In early February 2020, a decision was made here at the gallery to cancel that festival exhibition. It was felt it would be easier to prog program an exhibition that could be assembled in Australia. I, being Tracy as I do, suggested, well, given the significance of the December uh, acquisitions and the donation, the fact there hadn't been a Clarice Beckett exhibition for over 20 years, the fact that there is nothing in print on Clarice Beckett, the fact of the donation, perhaps we could stage a Clarice Beckett exhibition. In addition to my argument, I said Ros had just completed her PhD in 2017, so there was a body of knowledge there. And Ros, of course, was agreeable with working with the Art Gallery on publishing new material on Clarice Beckett. And as has been quoted back to me by management, I said that there was no reason not to do the show. <laughs> uh, and of course, happily, that decision was made to do the exhibition. But I'll make it clear, the exhibition would not have happened this exhibition would not have happened if it weren't for the world pandemic. It turns out uh, it is also the first historical Australian art exhibition to be staged by the gallery in seven years. The last one was the Mortimer Mempes exhibition on at the same time with Dorrit Black, which I was the curator with Elle on Dorrit Black. Seven year gap 
following the, the great decision, how exciting for the gallery to stage the exhibition, there is a rule in the public art museum world. You must, if you want to borrow a painting from another collection, you must submit a loan request letter from, with your director uh, to request what work you would like. So I sent the letters out just in time as I sent the letters out to all the institutions to secure the Clarice Beckett paintings from Canberra, Sydney and, and Melbourne and other regionals. Um, of course COVID hit Australia. Um, I couldn't travel, I couldn't go and look at works, I couldn't go and meet with Roz, I couldn't pick her brains in situ, the libraries closed, the NGV closed. And on top of that, Ros became very unwell last year and she was in the storm cell centre of hard lockdown in Melbourne. Her extensive catalogue raisonné, her doctoral thesis, records, contact numbers, everything was resting on a laptop that was her husband's. Uh, Ian had passed away and he had the passwords to the laptop. She had a computer on her desk, what are they called, like a personal computer, that exploded. The phone calls, everything, it's, I found little notes, I always make notes when I'm on the phone too with people, I went through my notes last year and there's a note. Um, the computer exploded, <laughs> uh, Rosa's PC computer exploded. Tracy, the IT specialist and people couldn't even go past her doorstep into her home. Everyone was locked out. Anyway, overnight it became clear the delivery of the exhibition and book and the design of the exhibition was up to me to coordinate from my old crappy laptop in my home office. And of course, Roz shared everything she possibly could with me when, when she could. She was very unwell. In the mix of all of this, I'm out talking to people, securing funding for the book. And um, I do wish to mention, I'm Glam Vanstone QC for throwing her really early support behind the book. Her support got the ball rolling. Catherine Branson QC followed, Professor Anne Edwards, Andrew and Hiroko Gwinnett, beautiful Lynn Williams, Darren McMillan, David and Pam McKee, and Pamela McKee and the Yankins, they all got behind it. Uh, and again, amazing. So it also meant I had to deliver uh, something for, for the world. Um, and I'm hoping at this point you're getting uh, some idea that uh, you'll appreciate from February 2020. Uh, everything's a blur in my mind and I'm getting names wrong, dates wrong, as darling Alira knows. Uh, so I haven't stopped, and that's also I'm a bit emotional and a bit teary because I'm tired. Anyway, moving forward to the delivery of the book and the exhibition. It's happened. And as you'll be aware, the exhibition has been nationally and critically acclaimed. And it's been a huge popular, popular success. Every night we get the, the numbers through. In the last two days, we've had a thousand people through each day. Matthew Westwood in The Australian, an astonishing exhibition, he said. John MacDonald, this exhibition is so phenomenal. 
I went back three days in a row. And I think many people have been back many times. The Australian Fin Review. I've never heard of so many people going to Adelaide for the Clarice Beckett exhibition. It's like the Venice Biennale. Great! Suddenly, that was the best quote ever because, you know, now you're talking. Now you're getting certain people engaged. If we can uh, capture the Venice Biennale audiences. Story there in terms of Beckett. She does reach across demographics, but across uh, interests areas as well. And that's partly because her work is, believe it or not, it's incredibly conceptual. It's incredibly radical, but that's another subject. Art Almanac, one of my favourite quotes from um, beautiful Judith Pugh. She said, whether you hitchhike or fly, sleep rough or stay in the poshest hotel, get to Adelaide to see the show. This is the Australian painter of the 20th century. She encapsulates the place and period and people she observed. None. So great. I'm just so, I mean, you know, wonderful responses, wonderful responses. And in, I did some maths. It's probably highly unreliable. The end of the exhibition, as you know, it's been extended by a week. We're on target to sell about 40,000 tickets. Uh, and that is with constant flux of COVID regulations and shutdowns and, you know, assistant directors saying, Trace, we've got to take chairs out, we've got to take chairs out of the exhibition because there's too many people. So there's a whole lot of variance coming into all of this, but let's say the response is extraordinary. To put this success in perspective, the most attended AXA exhibition in the last 10 year period was Colours of Impression. Let's put it in perspective. A packaged exhibition from the Musée d'Orsay of Impressionist works. This is me off the record. I hope we can edit this. Mostly from storage. It included art by the most famous artists in the world. It was a state government initiative, our state government initiative, and carried government funding. Sponsorship from Mazda, Singapore Airlines. It had a team of highly paid designers, three curators, and a marketing budget that one could only dream of. The final attendance figure was just over 140,000 people. Okay, so I reckon we're doing okay. Clarice Becker is hardly a household name. And there is only me, no team, except a beautiful gallery team, no major sponsors, and an old, this is the unfortunate event, and I was using my old mobile phone, my children raised the money to buy it for me a few years ago for my 50th birthday, and it died, like Ros's computer, and I lost two years of, of, photo, of my images off of it. Oh, that couldn't be. So I'm using devices and things that, you know, are a bit challenged. So we've done really well. We've done really well. And everyone is asking me, coming up to me, I can't walk through the cafe, people calling me, how are you feeling about the exhibition? And um, I may, uh, what, and, and about the success, well, actually, I may answer that question at the end of this talk, uh, if there's time. 
But importantly, what's really important here is the staging of these exhibitions uh, is a rare and critical opportunity to further study the artist's work and identify and locate previously unknown paintings. Uh, the Australian newspaper with the search for two paintings and one of them surfaced in a Brisbane private collection, the butterfly catcher. Uh, which was, was really, really exciting, and I'm sure many of you have followed the story. But now for a touch of serendipity number three. Unexpectedly yesterday, two days before Mother's Day, a painting of the artist's mother surfaced, unseen for 50 years. Another fortunate event. Collection. It was showed in the 1971 exhibition. I've never seen it before. And very interesting. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about Clarice's mum in the context of this coming to light. Clarice's relationship with her mother is complex. It seems there was never a loving bond between them until very late in Kate's life, Kate Beckett's life, when Clarice nursed her from late 1932 through an incredibly painful uh, death and apparently some, a, a kidney problem. Kate was strong as a wife of a respectable banker, Joseph Beckett. Five years before Clarice was born, Kate had actually given birth to her to a son, Thomas. Tragically, he was born microcephalic, and as Ros has recently revealed, his 17-year-long life remained a family secret until after Hilda's death, Clarice's sister Hilda, until after Hilda's death in 1980. It seems Clarice, second-born, was openly referred to by her mother as, I quote, the replacement child. She yearned to be closer to her mother. 91, five years after Clarice, was outgoing and confident, becoming Kate's favourite. Her father, Joseph, was a deeply well-meaning man, a product of his own family and of the era, apparently a street angel and house devil. And despite his obstructive behaviour towards his daughter's wish to be an artist, he cared for Clarice deeply. Clarice's ever-present shadow, however, was a continued yearning for her mother's approval and warm affection. Notably, when to Hilda, when compared with a rare portrait of uh, Clarice's sister Hilda, the portrait of the other's mother seems distant and she turns to look away from the artist. If we can go back, Jack, please. Yeah. There's quite a coolness, don't you feel? Quite a coolness in the two. You know, why isn't there a portrait of her mother like that? Other fortunate events have included the surfacing of many other works by Clarice Becker in private collections. And many cast light on her work historians all the time, more and more about her, her mysterious methods. What we find is Clarice Beckett produces multiples of paintings. And this duplication process, this method, is a very much a Max Meldrum method. 
and Beckett, of course, as you know, studied with Max Meldrum for nine months in 1917. And he not so much taught his students how to paint, but how to observe and how to perceive the world around you. He believed painting was a science. He championed a theory called the science. He believed that painting didn't require to be a painter, didn't require any talent or any emotion and that anyone could do it. He advocated that it embodied no, um, sorry, no emotions and also that the paintings themselves, because it's scientific, because there's no emotion, could be repeated, the same painting, repeat, repeat, repeat. Like an actor playing a role every night. Now we have a portrait in our collection here by Max Meldrum of his daughter Ida and we, I wrote a little article about it. So there's multiples around and of, of many others. So he always taught a way of painting that was about recording what you see, not what you know. And everything was based around training the eye. He, and this method of painting is famously now referred to as look and put. Same method, you know, taught via Dargy, you know, to artists like Williams and John Brack and so forth. It's gone down through generations. His methods sharpened um, uh, his students' observational abilities and an awareness of pictorial form. And they, his Meldrum students, including Beckett, they had they achieved successes, very good results, very quickly, which I won't go into because I'm passionately interested about it, but I'll hold ourselves up. So the work on the right has surfaced uh, while the exhibition was on. The work on the left is in the exhibition, but you can see the one on the right is like a preliminary study for it. So you've got two things really happening. She's producing small, Clarice Beckett, is producing small on-the-spot colour notes she's later taking home to the kitchen and working up into larger subjects or if she's happy with something she's image about three days ago I visited a woman in Adelaide and the work on the right shocking photograph sorry but the one on the left National Gallery of Australia's work on display in the space the one on the right in a private collection in Adelaide and here in the exhibition itself, you can see the study on the left, morning shadows on the right, same thing. So you see this, again, these, these methods of Beckett working. Now, most art historians, and, and I'm sure Ros wasn't sort of eager to talk about this aspect of, of Clarice Beckett's practice. Everyone wants to think they've got a whole soul original. I guess I've just given you a little insight of just some of the things. I've got a, a, a document on my desk of emails that have come in from people letting me know they have a Beckett and blah, blah, blah. So it's a really important, important for our institution to be staging these, these exhibitions because of all this new information coming forward. I'm going to move on now to a different aspect of the talk and really talk about what, in summary, has brought me in, in working on the exhibition. And that is the acceptance of my proposition that Beckett was working in an international context of a multitude of global variants of modernism. I'd started my PhD at the University of Adelaide a few years ago, exploring um, aspects of, of this global modernism. So it was kind of all stuff in my head. While Clarice Beckett never left Victoria, she was tapping into trends in international thought. 
Up until now, she's been understood as important for elevating modern motifs, you know, in the canon. She was kind of included into the canon after those 1970s shows because, oh gosh, she's painting a telegraph pole and a car. Um, but there's been this very messy, clumsy analysis of Beckett's work up until now. She's kind of in, was in the canon because of that. But what I'm saying is she's now, um, she's more than that. She's more than that, uh, and that's because of the radical optical diaphanous qualities of her modernism. The blur, the blur is really important. In one of her only surviving statements of intent, Claris wrote that she sought to achieve an exact illusion of reality. In my essay and in the exhibition, I question to exactly is she referring? We can't make assumptions. Was it literally earthly reality or possibly a spiritual reality? And you know, um, I drove, drove past, walked past our television yesterday and there's some, a program on the ABC about this surge and move, groundswell of interest in spiritualism happening around the world post-pandemic. And again, I think that's why suddenly Beckett is very much speaking to us now. We can see what she was really exploring. We can see it now. So it's part of a, a, a big shift. Reaching of this awareness is time and time again suggested that this awareness can be arrived at through intense sensory experiences. Claris loved the work of the transcendentalist poet Walt Whitman. Uh, and of course his collection, Poems of Poems, Leaves of Grass, and in particular, Song of Myself, an American inspired by his personal experiences. And I'll just read uh, one little stanza from uh, Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, and a poet Clarice was very passionate about. I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me is as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood, formed from this soil, this air. And so you can see how that would have absolutely spoken to Clarice Beckett. I was thinking when I was reading, uh, I mean, obviously I was reading Whitman's poetry as I was doing a lot of my research, but I reread it yesterday. And stanza nine from Song of Myself reminded me of this image by Clarice Beckett. And again, I'll read it to you. The big doors of the country barn stand open and ready. The dried grass of the harvest time loads the slow-drawn wagon. The clear light plays on the brown-grey and the armfuls are packed to the sagging mow. I am there. I help. I came stretched atop of the load. I felt its soft jolts, one leg reclines on the other. I jump from the crossbeams and seize the clover and tangle my hair full of wisps. 
And so here, you know, we get this sense that you can feel it's love drunk, you know? The sensory immersion in that natural world. And we sense the deep feeling. Moving on to another aspect of is her, one of her most treasured books was a copy of Helena Blavatsky's Eastern mystical book, The Voice of Silence. Helena Blavatsky was a, a Russian philosopher and an author, author who co-founded the Theosophical Society in America in 1975. And just so you don't blur over with the, when I mention the word theosophy, it's like an esoteric philosophy based on ancient religions. Uh, its members believed in the oneness of all life. So the rug, the tiles, flowers, all of this is interconnected. Uh, and they sometimes practiced clairvoyance and held seances and so they, they, uh, they believed in tapping into this other, other world. Blavatsky gained an international following and, you know, I've learned, I wasn't so aware at all until a couple of years ago, that theosophy took a massively strong hold in Australia. Um, in fact, so much so, Jack, if we can just go back, that so much interest in this, these ideas that the Star Amphitheatre uh, for the New World teacher, Jiddu Krishnamurti, uh, it would come in through Sydney Heads, walk across the water and address his people. And so this was built, um, what did I say, 23, 1923, uh, Balmoral Beach in Sydney, Mossman. It seated 2,000 people and had room for 1,000 people to stand. And you can see it included a stage, apparently a chapel, a tea room, a meeting hall and a library. Um, so it gives you some sense of the sway of these kinds of enlightened, if you like, ideas. In um, The Voice of Silence, written by Helena Blavatsky, um, the Clarice is reading these words. It's a book she held close to her. Helena writes, help nature and work on with her and nature will regard thee as one of her creators and make obscience and she will open wide before thee the portals of her secret chambers. This idea of the portal uh, was very strong in my mind when I was inspired the doorways in the exhibition, the idea of moving from one realm into another, but also, as I like to say, I always underpin it by art history. If you look at the way Clarice is composing her works, you look at the composition and the way she frames sometimes the front of her compositions so that you get this piercing portal all the way through. It's what she's thinking about. Now, Clarice's sister Hilda recalled to Rosalind that these writings by Helena Blavatsky were, I quote, highly influential for Beckett. Proponents of theosophy consider it as the ancient wisdom on which all the ancient religions of the world, without exception, are founded, claiming it couldn't have any quarrel with any other religion. 
It was deeply inclusive of people of every religion known to the world, merging Eastern and Western traditions with the ancient philosophies of India, Greece, Egypt, while simultaneously embracing fundamental truths discovered in science, particularly the fields of biology, physics, psychology, and of course with Beckett, psychoanalysis. The doctrine's ideas were, were persuasive. And what's interesting for me, because I know quite a lot about Max Meldrum, his idea really interesting. You think, ah, yeah, now I know where Meldrum was getting a lot of his ideas from. He was drawing on it too. Meldrum was a famous free thinker and a pacifist. And a lot of his phrasing and his words, uh, uh, he's also tapping into this is my argument. And of course, Meldrum's books and ideas were published in 1919. You can see why Claris was so keen to go and study with Max Meldrum because of his ideas. And he was giving lectures in Melbourne. And she, she was very interested in that and comfortable with that. So um, Beckett attended, Claris Beckett attended spiritualist meetings at the Princess Theatre in Melbourne, although she never became a member. She had leaf systems and she was interested in challenging Christianity. She was brought up Anglican and she was very interested in sort of cross-examining, if you like, her own reverend uh, in the church. He would come and have dinner at the Beckett's home and uh, she would press some heavy questions. So she challenged her own family's Anglican faith. Her interest uh, was piqued. I love this story that Ros has shared with me. Her interest was piqued, Clarice's interest in spiritualism at a bohemian dinner staged by the Cahoon family in their Eastern Week home in Melbourne. They were strict, they were theosophists, and part of being a, a theosophist was being a vegetarian. And, you know, like this is er 1905, 1906, you know, really early in our, our times. And then after their vegetarian meal, they had a post-dinner seance. And Ros recounts that there was a serving of spaghetti primavera, an exotic new experience. And this novelty was further enhanced by the striking presentation of a large celadon bowl of green salad garnished with Persian blue borage blossoms. Pink petals from rose geraniums. We'd, I think we'd all love that today. And of course, the whole effect charmed Clarice. After dinner, the guests moved into a room with chairs arranged in a semicircle facing a green curtain. A psychic medium had been invited to conduct a seance, something which was much more than mere parlour entertainment to these committed believers. And Ros makes the point that these solemn rituals, obviously taken very seriously, were regarded as a form of empirical science. And they were held to prove that there was an afterlife. At the time of First World War, and certainly really becomes strong post-First World War, you know, like the building of the amphitheatre in post-First World War, people are very interested in seeking, connecting with those that they'd lost. You know, 60,000 men had been lost. The, the sisters, the mothers, everyone's wanting to, to tap in. So it's part of the, the healing process too. Anyway, I'm rabbiting on and the Cahoons who staged this fantastic dinner, it, as it happens, were friends of Meldrum and they lived nearby. And so there were what the staging of this exhibition, writing and researching, is it's like, whoa, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of artists there working in Melbourne.
all interested in spiritualism, including the wonderful C. Douglas Richardson. We've just acquired a gorgeous little hand-built sculpture by Richardson. And it was regarded that Douglas Richardson, part of this group, was a seeker of souls. And if he had been a Frenchman, he would have been regarded as a symbolist. So what was important for me to, to work out was that Douglas Richardson was also president of the Victorian Artists' War and 26 to 30, coinciding directly with Beckett's active exhibiting with the society. So what's clear is that the theosophical texts provide a way of thinking about the physical world and, and in an emotive spiritual way. Any readings of these ideas, as Claris was doing, would have sharpened uh, her awareness of her observing the world around her. Beckett would have been very receptive to these ideas about sense perception in particular. Who travelled to Australia, she gave lectures in Australia, her name was Annie Besant. And she wrote an essay called Nature's Finer Forces. And again, listening to her words and tuning in, if you like, getting into that vibration, observing nature and reading these texts, you can see it clearly in, in Beckett's work. And of course, as, as Meldrum. So, Besant wrote and proposed in her essay that through an evolution of one's spiritual intelligence, the personal experience of the physical world evolves into a finer receptivity. So, certainly the paintings of Beckett's express this nuanced visual language, one that seems to be imbued with these pervading spiritual and optical ideas that relate to carefully seeing the world. And it's noted, apparently, Clarice Beckett developed an eye and a memory for colour, which was considered nothing short of remarkable. So she was absolutely clear in her observations. So like a bowerbird, Clarice Beckett was gathering and absorbing a rich multitude of inspirational sources, and Alton fused them into an alchemy of seamless floating fields of lustrous paint to capture the timeless in a split moment. So I guess what I would like to do is conclude and I return to the earlier question that I've been asked now since the staging of the exhibition about how do I feel about the response to the exhibition. Well, I feel bewildered, I feel humbled and I feel very moved. Everyone has been moved by it. And it's having that happen that I find is incredibly special, that we're reaching people. But of course it was a labour of love. Everything throughout the process, and I believe, I hope to think, everything I do in my curatorial practice is given a particular focus and care and consideration and love, and I think that has come through. But it's also because this exhibition has been shaped in a way that is presented that you can't slice and dice it, you can't analyse it. It's an experience. It's something you feel. So 
It's a deep experience. It's an experience that I find frees the mind. And I put late, once the show was up, I added an extra wall text about encouraging visitors to hold your gaze on the painting. And when you do that, it was kind of trickery for me on behind, behind it a little bit, because in slowing down and engaging with the paintings, we're actually being, and we don't need to bring any knowledge to this show. So as people come up the stairs in tears and with smiles on their faces and so forth, the exhibition is really operating like a tonic. It's like replenishing people as they come through. And while I was bailed up most of last year in my home office with my bad laptop and pleading with photographers in Melbourne and Sydney to get their permits and knock on the doors of our lenders and many of them elderly to see if they could please enter their homes and do it in a safe way so we could have works photographed for the book. Quite a lot of flashbacks to that time. But the whole time I was working on it, I knew in my heart of hearts, I knew there would be an appetite for it, for people. We need to be uh, nourished, I believe, and replenished. So how do I feel about it? I feel really pleased that people have responded in the way that they have. Clara Speck is a great artist, no matter where she's displayed, whatever, she stops people in her tracks. But the fact I was had the opportunity, National Gallery of Victoria and so forth, they all have a team of in-house exhibition designers. We don't have that here, we don't have the luxury, but also it's a blessing, fortuitous, unfortunate, fortunate, um, it's a blessing. So as curators, we are responsible for the design of the exhibition down to the centimetre. And the colour palette, the position of the walls, the size of the cuts in the walls, the height, every detail. It's a blessing because as curators, we have the work in our heads, we have the knowledge and we have the understanding and we can translate that into the entire exhibition. So it's really special that we're given the trust and faith to do that design. And so, as you know, the whole exhibition, I've put forward my argument to structure it around the course of one single day, but also there are certain intervals and rhythms throughout the show that were very, very deliberately placed all at the same time trying to recycle materials. Um, so I guess, how do I feel? I feel honoured and privileged to have been given the opportunity to, to do this exhibition. I hope that we get to do more of these exhibitions. And it certainly has been unfortunate to not have Dr. Holland Rake with us, this big void here today as our special guest. But I certainly feel really fortunate to have the opportunity to sort of give you some personal insights into the staging of the exhibition. But I thank you very, very much for your attention and please continue to enjoy the exhibition while it's on. Okay, thank you.